our Bibles, if you would please, to the book of Galatians chapter 3. And our subject this evening is the second part of the message, Fools Depend on the Flesh. You know, we've never been a church that teaches that a person has to be highly educated or biblically trained or fully discipled in order to be a convert to Christ. In fact, the apostles, the original ones that Jesus chose, those 12, were not described as being educated men. And it's kind of interesting that all of the apostles, except one, were Galileans. And Galilee was not an area of Israel that was considered to be a place that produced a lot of erudite professorial types. So if you wanted to uh, be a student of the word and you wanted to learn, then you were educated in Jerusalem at the place where the great rabbis were. Paul, who was chosen as an apostle later, uh, was the most educated of all of the disciples. And he was from the city of Tarsus, which incidentally borders on Galatia. And uh, even though he was born there, he was raised in Jerusalem. And he tells us in Acts 22, verse number 3, that he was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was one of the highly respected lawyers and members of the Jewish Sanhedrin. So Jewish, uh, or Jerusalem rather, and the temple were the place to go. That was the Harvard, the Yale, the Cambridge, the Oxford of religious studies. And so if you wanted to learn the word of God and you wanted to learn about the law and wanted to learn about uh, Jewish life, religion, and all of that, then Jerusalem is where you would go. Now it's interesting also that there was only one of those disciples who was from Jerusalem, and that was Judas. And we all know how he turned out. So we learn from that, I think, maybe uh, coincidentally or incidentally perhaps I should say, that being a convert to Christ and being a leader even among Christians does not mean that you have to have a great prior education. But that doesn't mean that Christianity is a very simple religion. In fact, the doctrines of Christianity are very profound. I was talking to Brother Miguel at the door a few weeks ago and we were just talking about how how mind-boggling that much of the doctrines that we teach really are. I mean, how do we do things like, like reconcile the doctrines of human responsibility and the sovereignty of God? That's a difficult thing to do. Uh, I, I know that the Bible teaches that God invites all people to come to him for salvation, but at the same, and he says that he'll save anybody who does come, but at the same time, the scripture says that before a person will come to Christ, that he has to have a prior working of the Holy Spirit in his heart. Now, those are two issues that are very difficult to resolve, and I have to confess to you that I'm not able to reconcile all of that in my mind, but I do know this, that the Bible teaches both of those. And so I know that God can resolve them. And so we just believe it and we teach what God says. So our salvation, I think we could say from one standpoint, is not difficult. Our, standpoint, our, our salvation is, is simple from one standpoint. And that is all we have to do is to place our faith in Jesus Christ. Just put all of our hope and confidence in what Jesus did at the cross... And that's not a hard thing for people to do in one sense of the word. And yet, uh, in another sense, our salvation in Christ is a very difficult matter. In fact, there are great theologians that have spent their entire lives and never get to the bottom. They never plumb the bottom of the depths 
of what Christ has done for us. And even Paul, that educated apostle, the one that Peter said wrote some things that are very hard to understand, even Paul had to finally just stand back and in a great doxology, he said, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Now, you don't have to be highly educated to be saved, but if you're going to enjoy your salvation, and if you're going to understand it to its greatest degree, then you must become a student of God's Word. And those who do not become students are very easily led away. As the Apostle Paul said, they're blown away by every wind of doctrine. And if you are not grounded solidly in the truth of God's Word, that can happen to you. Now, in this case, in our text, Paul calls the Galatians foolish. Well, why were they foolish? Well, it's because they they didn't stop to reason out doctrine. And they hadn't taken any precautions uh, to think very carefully about the implications of doctrines that were being taught to them by those who weren't teaching the truth. And so when the Judaizers came to the Galatian churches, they started to believe those different doctrines that they were teaching. They heard a gospel that was different from what they first believed, and they just didn't stop to think things through. Now, this is what Paul says to them in the first five verses of Galatians 3. He says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth it he by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now in the first two chapters, Paul defended his apostleship. He was maligned by the Judaizers and he was doubted by the Galatians. And it was necessary for him to reestablish himself as the chosen apostle to the Gentiles. And so he had to uh, convince them by uh, different kinds of proofs that he was a chosen apostle of God. And that was so that he could prove to them also that his doctrine of justification by faith alone was the right doctrine. And once that had been done... And we saw how skillfully that Paul was able to do it, how he asserted his apostleship. But once that had been done, then he's ready to enter into the logical arguments of how the Galatians could know that they needed nothing to be added to their salvation, that it was complete when they first placed their faith in Christ. Now, in the first five verses, Paul argued with them based upon their experience. What happened to them when they believed? You know, I was speaking the other day to someone about, we were talking about experience and uh, we're discussing the difficulty of arguing about someone's experience. And that's a hard thing to do. Uh, And experience is a subjective argument, especially when you're dealing with the experience of just one person. But it becomes more than a subjective argument when you begin to see that this is something or something happens to all Christians But lest we think that experience is the only teacher, 
we'll find out in the following verses that Paul backs up experience with Scripture. And that's what you always have to do. Ultimately, all experiences have to be tried by the Scriptures. That's the infallible standard. And so we always look to the objective truth of God's Word. Now, as we look at these first five verses, Paul begins with this statement, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Paul was nearly in disbelief that these people had so easily turned away from the truth, and it's almost as if someone had cast a spell over them, and he calls them foolish because they failed to think through that doctrine of the Judaizers when they knew that they had experienced something that was different. They experienced something that was unusual and unknown to them when they received Christ as Savior. Now, in our last lesson, we saw how that Paul appealed to their experience, and he spoke of their experience of the cross. And so we framed a question this way in paraphrasing Paul. Number one was, what happened to you at the cross? Paul's inquiry here is about the cross. What happened to you when you heard the message of Christ on the cross? And that's the first approach that he gives, and this is going to include an argument for all three persons of the Trinity, that all the Godhead is involved in our salvation. And the first place that we go when we speak of salvation is to the work that Jesus did at the cross. Now you'll notice in the first verse he said, the message of Christ crucified has been evidently set forth among you. And that means that the preaching of the cross was clear to them. As I pointed out last week, the wording here is such that it means like a placard that's been placed on a, on a pole announcing something. And he says to them, this was plainly set forth to you. I preached the cross to you. It was clear. And so Paul vividly explained to them what had happened at the crucifixion and what it was accomplished at the cross for the salvation of their souls. Now, the cross, of course, is where the body of Christ was broken for our sins. It's the place where blood flowed down from his wounds, from his head, his hands, his feet, and from his side. All of our sins were placed upon Christ at the cross. One author wrote when speaking of how Paul presented the cross to them, he said, they looked, they listened, till their hearts were broken, till all their sins cried out against them. And in a passion of repentance, they cast themselves before the crucified and took him for their Christ and King. Well, Paul says to them, do you remember what happened there? Do you remember how that your hearts were pricked and how they were broken when I described for you what Christ did for you at the cross? And so do you see what he does? He takes them back to the cross. He takes them to the day that they first heard the message. And he says, what happened to you then? Now, the cross is always the first place that we return when we have any doubts. When you hear something that doesn't sound quite right, then what should come to your mind is how does that doctrine match with what I know happened at the cross? Do you really need anything more than what happened at the cross to be saved? So Paul asked them, were you saved then? Did you know that you were justified by God then? Did you feel any lack in that initial point of faith when you first believed? Was there any lack in the cross? And so he appeals to that first encounter with, with them uh, as they met Christ at the cross, what happened to them there. Now, we discussed all of that last week. If you didn't get to hear the message last week, I hope that you'll listen to it. I didn't necessarily preach it in a great way, but there was a lot of good content in that message. And I hope that there was something in it that would cause you 
to think about your own salvation and go back and just recall what happened when the day that you received Christ, what happened when you saw the cross. Well, we go then to the second proof that Paul gives in their, of their experience. Next, he wants to know, what happened to you in conversion? Now, here we move to the third person of the Trinity. At first, he refers to God the Son, and now he goes to the Holy Spirit of God, and it's the Holy Spirit's peculiar work to convert the lost sinner. Verse 2, he says, This only what I learn of you, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Now, last week I pointed out that none of these people had been to the cross. Uh, None of them had seen it personally, and yet the work that Christ did for them was as real to them as if they had been standing there on that day in that crowd watching as Christ was crucified. Now, when you believed and when they believed, we never doubted the cross. Why? Why don't we doubt the cross? It's because the Holy Spirit is the one who makes it real to our heart. It's the Holy Spirit working in our heart before we even know that he's there. You know, I love this passage in John that describes the secretive work of the Holy Spirit before a person believes. Jesus said, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit begins to do his work, you don't even know he's there. Because what he's doing down beneath the consciousness of, uh, of, of man, beneath your consciousness, he is beginning to work in your heart, preparing your heart, softening your hard heart. He begins to change your will. He works on you from the inside. He reverses the will so that when you hear the gospel of Christ, you don't automatically reject it. Because that's what all people do. They automatically reject Christ unless the Holy Spirit is doing that work in the heart. And then the evidence that the Holy Spirit has been there and that he's done his work is that the person comes in repentance and faith, trusting Christ and receives the work of the cross. Now we praise the Lord for this, that the Holy Spirit does not remain a secret to us. Now he works secretly, Beneath the consciousness in regeneration, but once a person is saved, he comes to indwell the believer. And so he not only wants you to come to Christ, he wants you to know that you'll always live with the assurance that you have been brought to Christ. Now listen to this verse as Paul explains Holy Spirit assurance in the heart of a believer. He says in Romans chapter 8, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. So the Holy Spirit is not a silent partner in salvation. He's silent in regeneration, but when that regenerating work has been done, then the Holy Spirit continually witnesses with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, another way that Paul puts this is in Ephesians chapter 1. 
And this is part of that long 14-verse sentence that Paul begins in Ephesians 1. And this is what he says in the, four, in the 11th verse of that, of that chapter. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, talking about Christ, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. There he says that every believer is sealed with the Holy Spirit. That seal is an earnest. And that means that God gives the Spirit as a pledge that the Spirit is the guarantee that you are God's child and God promises that he will fully redeem you both spirit and body and you'll be with him in glory. That's the guarantee of our salvation. Now there are many implications that are in that in these verses that are beyond the scope of our study tonight and uh, we're going to take up the Holy Spirit Spirit's work, of course, in this long series that we've got started on the Holy Spirit on Sunday nights. But the least that we can say tonight is that no Christian has to wonder about his standing with God. We have been eternally justified through faith in the cross, and the Spirit has been given to you so that you know for sure that it's true. And it's really sad that those that exalt the Holy Spirit, almost to the extent that they exclude Christ so that they make you think that they know something about the Holy Spirit, something more than you know, they actually deny this most important truth. They believe that salvation can be lost and they believe that the Holy Spirit can actually leave a child of God. And that actually makes the guarantee of God worthless. It makes God a liar. And you can't make God a liar. The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. So there are some that lie about the scriptures. In fact, there are many do, and we can't do anything less to point out their lies. And it may not seem like Christian charity to a lot of people for me to say something like the sincere charismaniacs are liars, but I'd be less than truthful if I didn't say that. Anything that is against the scripture, contrary to scripture, is a lie. And you'll notice that those people don't spend a whole lot of time in Scripture except to destroy the context of it and to pervert Scripture. So Paul takes them to the time of conversion. Did they have the Holy Spirit when they were converted? Well, if they were saved, they did. The Holy Spirit's always given to to believers. God's gift is not a gift that he gives to a select number of saints. The Spirit is not given at a later time than conversion. And how do we know that? Well, we could stay right here in the context of Paul's letter to the Galatians to find this out. What about that Jerusalem conference? What did Paul say in Galatians 2 verse 1? He said, Then 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. Now, I think you're familiar with the rest of that story because you may have thought that I beat that one like a dead horse. We spent a lot of time talking about this conference in Jerusalem and what happened there. But if you'll indulge me for just a moment, I want to return to uh, a point that is, that's germane to what we're discussing tonight, a significant part that's important to this discussion. Now, in the Jerusalem Council, Peter 
stood up and gave a speech and presented an argument for justification by faith alone. And let me read to you what he said in Acts 15. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the, uh, hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. So he says, what is the proof that the Gentiles have believed? Well, you know that the argument in that 15th chapter was over circumcision. The Gentiles need to be circumcised to be saved. And Peter said, no, because they were not circumcised, and yet they were given the gift of the Holy Spirit, just like we, just like the Jews were given on the day of Pentecost. Now, the point of this is that the Holy Spirit is given as the evidence of salvation. So Paul would say to the Galatians, you need to think this through. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And that's the same question that Paul asked those disciples from Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 that we talked about on Sunday night. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, we've not even heard about this wonderful work of the Holy Spirit now, the question here, though, is framed a little bit differently because here he's headed for the conclusion of justification by faith alone. And so he asked the Galatians, did you get the Holy Spirit upon the hearing of faith? Did you get it when you believed? Or did you get it through the works of the law? Now, notice there, there is no dispute here about whether they had the Holy Spirit. There's no argument about that. They had received the Holy Spirit and there must have been evidence for it and we'll see that in verse number 5 in just a moment. So they knew that they had the Holy Spirit. So, so Paul says, now think back to when you received him. How did you get him? Was it by the law? And that's the same as asking, was it by circumcision? And as we've learned before, circumcision stands for anything added to the faith of a believer. So he, he's asking them, if you truly believe and you know that you have the Holy Spirit abiding in you, how did he come? So think it through, Galatians. Don't be foolish. Use your brain. You know, it may not take a genius to be saved, but everybody that gets saved does have a supernatural understanding of godly things that have been given to him when he believes. And so when you receive the Holy Spirit, you get this understanding. So they were well capable of discerning the answer to this question. When did they get the Holy Spirit? How did they get him? Now, let's, let's take a, a moment here to look at this argument and see what Paul does with this. Did they receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law? Now, we know that that is the most impossible thing. But to the Jews, this might be a little bit hard to understand. So what Paul does, he's going to make it clearer when we get to the next section. He begins to talk about Abraham and the promise that was made to him. But the Gentiles at this point should have no problem sorting out the correct answer to this question. Did they receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law? Well, how could they? They didn't have the law. The Gentiles weren't given the law. I mean, there's no reason to believe that the Gentiles had any special understanding of the law. They were just like other Gentiles. Now, if they had been proselytes to Judaism, then that would have been another matter. But then we wouldn't be talking about this because they would have been circumcised already. So these ignorant Gentiles, that is ignorant as far as the law is concerned, they don't have to think really hard to get the answer to this. There was no ceremony, there was no ritual involved in their reception of the Holy Spirit. 
And thus, by a logical argument, by extension, there is no ceremony by which they were justified because nobody gets the Holy Spirit unless they are saved and justified with God. You see, that's how how God corroborates our faith. How do we know that faith is genuine? When does God agree that our faith has been rightly placed and that we have made a full commitment to Jesus Christ as the Savior? What happens then? When is God in agreement with that? It's when he sends the Holy Spirit to live in a person. So they were justified and they were saved and they hadn't been to Moses to get anything. So the real crux of the matter, again, is the central issue that we're dealing with. How are you justified? Is it by faith? Or is there something else that goes with it? So that's really, really been the problem for Christianity for thousands of years. With Roman Catholicism, it was a, it was a snowball that started with the separation of the clergy and the laity. It was taking away the peculiar work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's heart. Then it was taking away the priesthood of the believer. And then there was the addition of sacerdotalism. And that snowball became so huge and picked up such momentum that it grabbed all the legal requirements that it could. And now there's no semblance of salvation or justification properly left in it and then in the past hundred years or so there is another growing snowball and that's the charismatic movement that has perverted the work of Jesus Christ and they've introduced certain special conditions by which you can get a fuller salvation they believe there's a way to get more of the spirit and so they speak in charismania of the full gospel as if there is a quarter gospel or a half gospel And if you meet all the conditions, then you can have this full gospel. And that tells you that modern Christianity is filled with Judaizers. Now, if Paul and the other apostles had not been Holy Spirit inspired and not known better than this, then they would have been greatly surprised if they were here with us today and see how that this huge monstrosity has come about from such small beginnings. It started with this small number of people called the Judaizers. But Paul had great insight where this doctrine would lead, and so that's why he was so forcefully against it. So why don't people see this? Well, either they're not saved, and I think that's the case most of the time, or they're foolish. They don't think things through. Their, their heads are, are stuck in some alternate reality or something like that. It's like they're walking around with, on drugs or something. So they're foolish. They're just floating around and they think they have a greater understanding of the word of God, a greater understanding of faith, and they don't have any understanding at all. Well, that leads us with the, leaves us with another avenue of experiential proof from the Trinity. God the Son was crucified. What happened at the cross The Holy Spirit was given, what happened in conversion. And now we come to the third person, or or rather the first person of the Trinity, and that's God the Father. And so now Paul uses God the Father in his argument. So thirdly, the question is, what happened at your confirmation? Now, I'm not speaking of confirmation like Roman Catholics and Protestants do. This is not a sacrament that I'm discussing here. It doesn't make a Christian a fuller Christian or grant him rights and privileges in the church. But what I mean by this is how did the Father confirm their faith? 
How did the Father show them it was genuine? Now, I've touched on that a little bit. He gave the Holy Spirit to come to live in a person's heart, and that's the guarantee of eternal salvation. Now, we notice in verse number 5, He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth it he by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, he, at the beginning of verse number 5, refers to the Father, that the Father is the one who gives the Holy Spirit. John fourteen sixteen, Jesus said, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. And the 26th verse, But the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. And John fifteen twenty six. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Luke eleven thirteen. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask them? In Acts one verse four, and being assembled together with them. That's Jesus, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. Now, what is that promise of the Father? Well, we find it in Acts 2, verse 23. Uh, Peter was preaching his message on the day of Pentecost, and he talked about how the miracle of tongues was the evidence of this gift that God had given. The manifestation of the Holy Spirit was what the Father promised. And so he says in verse 33 in Acts 2, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. Now, going back to Galatians, the presence of the Holy Spirit was seen in signs and miracles. And that, that was the power of God at work. That was, this is why Paul brings the Father into this discussion. He shows that it's actually the Father who was the power behind all of those miracles. And did that power come because of rituals and ceremonies? Well, everything we've seen thus far is the evidence of salvation and justification has no connection with the law whatsoever. So their salvation was confirmed by God the Father in his wonder-working power. Now, do you realize the charismatics miss that too? Do you ever hear about them, hear them speaking uh, of the Father as the one who works miracles? No, they give all the credit to the Holy Spirit. So it seems that they just never seem to get things in the right place. So here we, here we see this, that, that Paul begins with an argument of experience. What happened to you at the cross? What happened to you in your conversion? What happened in your salvation when it was confirmed? So God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the Father work in us to give us all the guarantees that we need of our salvation. We can't add anything to the work that they do. Does that not sound reasonable? That the Holy Spirit and Jesus the Son and God the Father, if they are not able to accomplish your salvation, then what is this speck of dust capable of doing? We can't add anything to their work. So we're told to glorify God. Glorify the three in one and him alone because he's the one that deserves all the credit. He justifies. He gives salvation 
He's the one that takes care of all of that. So proofs from experience, that's Paul's first avenue to show these Galatians they couldn't be justified by the works of the law. And then he'll go on and he'll begin to talk about the scriptures and how the scriptures back this up and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that no one can ever be saved by anything that they do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the time we spent together tonight. We thank you, Lord, for those who have come to hear. We just pray, Lord, that uh, what's been said tonight will be a help to us and will encourage us in our faith. Uh, It's just a wonderful thing to know that you are so concerned about us that the Holy Spirit and 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 Jesus Christ and God the Father uh, take up such important places in making sure that our salvation is fully guaranteed. And we thank you for that, Lord, and we're thankful that it's a salvation that lasts forever because you're the one who has accomplished it. Bless our people. Thank you again for this night. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.